When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Art of Charm podcast, where we break down the science of powerful communication and winning mindsets so you have the cheat code to succeed with people. Every episode is jam-packed with actionable steps to unlock the hidden superpowers inside of you. Level up with us each week by listening to interviews with the best in business, psychology, and relationships. We distill thousands of hours of research into the most effective tools and the latest science so you can start winning today. Let's face it. In order to be seen and heard, your communication needs to cut through the noise, and we're going to show you how. I'm AJ, successfully recovered introvert, entrepreneur, and self-development junkie. And I'm Johnny Zubak, former touring musician, promoter, rock and roller, and co-founder here at The Art of Charm. And for the last 15 years, we've trained thousands of top performers and teams from every background. We have dedicated our lives to teaching men and women all they need to know about communication, networking, and relationships. You shouldn't have to settle for anything less than extraordinary. Now let's kick off today's show. We have David Siegel back with us. David is the CEO of meetup.com and one of our favorite guests. Meetup is an online platform that brings people together, both through online and in-person events, and we've been recommending it to everyone who joins our programs. Now, Meetup has been out there for almost 20 years now and has helped over 50 million people find new friends and build their networks based on their interests. Today, David's going to discuss his new book with us, Decide and Conquer, 44 Decisions That Will Make or Break All Leaders That Just Came Out. Now, David is going to share with us culture building tips, how he was able to navigate an acquisition of meetup.com by WeWork and replace the founder, Scott Hefferman, in meetup.com's history. Now, if you don't know the full story, Scott Hefferman founded meetup.com in 2003. He grew his vision for 15 years before being acquired by WeWork for $200 million in 2018. Adam Newman, the founder and CEO of WeWork, decided to bring in new leadership to grow Meetup and meld the culture into the WeWork ethos. Now, if you don't know the story of the rapid rise and fall of Adam Newman, an iconoclastic leader who quickly grew WeWork to $47 billion only to be ousted for misleading investors and mismanaging the company, then check out the Fast Company article in the show notes to see the gritty details of Adam's fall from grace. David stepped into a whirlwind of excitement with the acquisition by WeWork, as well as a boatload of legal issues due to Adam's outlandish leadership style. He's here to tell us some of the war stories and epic decisions he had to make just to keep meetup.com in business. Welcome to the show, David. So excited to talk about your latest book, Decide and Conquer. Thank you. 44 decisions that make or break all leaders. And it felt, in reading it, rapid fire in your tenure at Meetup. Yeah, they say like drinking from a fire hose when you first, first, but this is like more than a fire hose. This is kind of like a eight alarm fire with, um, you know, a deluge of, of waterfall kind of going on all the same time between WeWork, the sale process, WeWork's crisis, Meetup's challenges, the pandemic hitting, you can't meet up anymore. So it made for a good story, good story, and hopefully good lessons. Because the goal is like learning, but it's boring to learn through like a textbook kind of learning. We've all read books that are just very like textbooky. And I always wanted to write a book around decision making and, and culture and leadership. But I didn't want to write a boring book. And fortunately, WeWork happened and they're the opposite of boring. So we're able to make something happen there. Well, I think if we were to look at your tenure at Investopedia, obviously growing and scaling, tons of books on those subjects. And let's be honest, there's a lot of luck involved in some of that. 
Crises are where real leaders are made. And there are a number of crises that you go through in the book and the decisions that you are facing and the speed at which those decisions had to be made. So I'd love to just set up for the audience sort of a little bit of the backstory of why you even wanted to become a CEO in the first place. Because in reading the book, it sounds incredibly stressful. It's so true. People think the life of a CEO is glamorous. I remember yesterday I was like shoving food down my mouth in like, you know, 45 seconds while I'm eating like half cold toast and and some jam. And I look at my wife and I'm like, people actually think the life of a CEO is fun. This is what like the life of a CEO is, like shoving food in your mouth at three minutes in between meetings. So back 20 years ago, I was in human resources, which most people don't go from human resources to become a CEO of a company. It's not that common, though, frankly, a lot of the things that one does in human resources, hire, recruiting, top talent, managing people, motivating people, organizational structure, strategy alignment, all that is very related to what a CEO actually does. But I was in human resources at DoubleClick. And I saw the stuff that Kevin Ryan, who was the CEO of DoubleClick at the time, and the general manager of a business that I was supporting as an HR partner, David Rosenblatt, who then became the CEO after Kevin, were doing. And I was advising, advising, advising. And it's a lot more fun to like be the owner and decision maker than kind of be the advisor. So at that moment, at like, whatever, 24, 25 years old, I was like, I need to become a CEO. What do I need to do? So I asked them and they're like, you kind of don't know anything about business. You got to go to business school. So that was it. I went to business school and the path for me was just like, Manager, senior manager, director, vice president, senior vice president. They became a president at a company called Seeking Alpha, then a CEO at Investopedia, and then CEO at Meetup. And for me, it was just the opportunity to like build culture was the reason to answer your question of why I was most excited about being a CEO. Culture impacts everything. And the person who influences the culture the most is the CEO. And I thought it sounded great. And, and it was great until, you know, it's also really hard. So that's the main reason I want to be a CEO. So let's talk about your jump to Meetup and what drew you to the company. Sure. So I had always gone to tons of Meetup events. So I grew up with a very strong sense of community. As someone who is religious, people who go to church or go to synagogue or go to the mosque, one of the great things about kind of religious infrastructures, and there's challenges, of course, as well, but is the community that you get to be a part of. And I grew up in an environment where if someone, God forbid, passed away, someone would be making food for them like for lunch and dinner every day for a month. Like that's the world that I lived in and grew up in. And that's the world that I live in right now. And a lot of people don't have that. Most people don't have that kind of sense of community. And I was just so fortunate to be able to have it. And there were also times in my life where I felt, you know, whether it transition times, going to college or graduating from college and being on my own for the first time, kind of lonely and didn't have that group of people. So I'd always been obsessed with people, hence my HR background, obsessed with community. And then when someone on the board of advisors for WeWork, who had been an early investor in WeWork, his name is Michael Eisenberg, reached out to me and I knew him from another job previously. And he said, David, how would you like to become the first outside CEO of Meetup? I was like, tell me more. And, and kind of that was it. And then a simple 27 interviews later, I became the CEO. And, you know, in the book, I talk about that insane interview process. And a lot of times dating is a good prerequisite for marriage. And like if the dating process is kind of like batshit crazy, then chances are marriages could be that way as well. And that's what happened. Yeah, it sounds like there were a few red flags through your dating process with Meetup. <laughs> exactly. With Meetup being a community-based uh, organization, and you could even say it's its parent company and, and what you had gone through in the book, we'll, we'll discuss as well with WeWork. To me, being a community-based organization as well, bringing people together, working together. COVID in it itself, I think, has made people realize how important community was to them, where they didn't have what they had taken or for granted for a very long time. For myself, being involved in the music scene in Los Angeles was a big deal for me. In fact, I've been involved in music scenes since I was a teenager. I love the performing arts. I love going to see them. But I never thought of it as a community until that was taken away from me. 
And what I had seen for there was a lot of people in my life who the weekend show showing up to see the local band this weekend was their community. And when that was taken away from them during COVID, they had fallen apart. In fact, I had I had a lot of friends who had passed away during COVID due to isolation, depression and chemical dependency because that was how they were dealing with that community taken away. And when they didn't have the weekly check-ins, when they weren't seeing people who were monitoring them regularly or that they feel love them and had that connection, uh, they unraveled. So now upon looking back, an appreciation for all of that, not taking it for granted, and now even more so, what can I add to my local community? What value do I have to be a bit of the glue, to make people want to put more into it? Incredibly important. Incredibly, Johnny, I mean, uh, first of all, I, I'm, I'm so sorry that, that you had to kind of go through that with so many of your, your friends and loved ones. I mean, it's just that we all went through a lot of different things, but it sounds like it was particularly challenging, you know, especially the world that you and AJ kind of work in and the people that you support. I'm sure it was, you know, really a challenge. I just, you know, thank God I had challenges, but not, not to the same, not to the same degree. There's good things that came out of it. And there's, there's, and there's obviously terrible that, that came out of it. And the good, like you said, is people's appreciation of how important community really is to their lives. And a very small microcosm is that is on my block, I've been living here for 10 years and we're, we're a very friendly block, but during COVID we became so much closer. I mean, in the summertime, everyone is just hanging out outside for the first time in ever in the history of our block, probably since I've been living here. And even before we had like a block party and a music and people meeting each other's kids in, a, in an exciting way. And that only happened because of COVID. So like you said, there's tons of tragedy and, and there's hopefully higher levels of gratitude and appreciation. And, and it's gratitude that's really one of the most important things in the book. I rename the acknowledgement section the gratitude section just because, you know, gratitude and, and having the right lens is just so important to kind of everything in life. Well, where I wanted to draw that parallel was that if, if you don't have that religious community that is structured in that way, I think as human beings, we're going to find it in other ways. And for my artist crowd, those weekend shows, the local spot where everyone hung out and created and put bands together and shown their work and got on open mics, that became their religion. Yeah, that was their church. That was their church. Well said. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well said. Now, in joining Meetup, there was a culture that the founder, Scott, had created, and community sounded like it was at the forefront. In fact, the way they treated their employees almost ahead of the product and the consumers of the product, the, the Meetuppers, so to speak, that was a challenge that you had to face. And what I want to start with is this decision framework. So as you go through the start of the book, you lay out your decision framework. How much of that framework was ready to go when you joined Meetup? And how much of that were you developing as you transitioned into the leader of a, a founder-led company up until that point? Great question. Okay, so I came in my first day when they said, David, welcome, you're now overseeing 250 people. You know, and they expect you to come out there with like with the Ten Commandments and saying like, "Here's the new strategy," even though I know nothing. So my first day, I stood up there and I said to everyone, "I don't know anything about the company strategy, but what I will tell you is a little bit about what items are particularly important to me in helping to run a company and how I like to get work done and how I like to do things." And I listed a bunch of things. One of them was, you know, emotional intelligence is more important than analytical intelligence in terms of success. I listed a number of different items. And there was one item there. And I said, I love revenue. I love revenue because it drives company success. It drives company growth. It lets us reinvest better in the product. And it was just like blank stares back at me. And I was like, wait, revenue. Revenue, it, it, revenue gives oxygen to our mission. Revenue allows us to like be able to grow Meetup more. Without revenue, we can't be a sustainable business. We can't grow. Just like blank. It, the culture was a wonderful group of people that deeply cared about community and deeply cared about mission. Many of the people that they hired, the focus was there as opposed to building a sustainable business 
with KPIs and metrics that can set us up to be successful. And the company in 2019 lost $18 million, which is not a sustainable situation. That's a great way for WeWork during a pandemic to decide, let's just shut this meetup thing down if it's losing that much money and we're in the middle of starting a global pandemic. So what I had to do is shift the business orientation to a much stronger business orientation than the company had in the past. And a lot of people didn't like that. And a lot of people said, this is different than the culture that we had. You know, the company spent over $100,000 on a Christmas party while it was losing $18 million. I don't think that's responsible. And had it on a Friday night, so I couldn't even go for religious reasons, I may add. But, you know, that's fine. (laughs) So we had to shift the mindset and we had to reinvest dollars in areas that would actually really drive growth as opposed to a lot of pet projects that, that a lot of people had. And we went around kind of killing a lot of things that were, were distractions. And that also did not necessarily make me popular. So the job hasn't been great for the ego. Let's put that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, part of that, number one, it sounded like Meetup was a great place to work at before oh you joined. Oh my God, I before I came. The rooftop I mean, parties. Rooftop and- barbecue parties. I mean, people had a lot of fun. A lot of money was being thrown around. A lot of money spent on lots of different things that people had a great time around. Yes. Much more fun than, you know, the much watered down picnic kind of holiday party that we had later on. Yes. But facing these challenges and having such a different experience at Investopedia, you talk about having your personal board of advisors that you would go to and mentors that helped shape this decision-making process for you. So could you share a little bit with our audience how you approach building that personal board of advisors and how you grow your network? Because you had some heavy hitters in there that really helped guide you and shape you in some of those major decisions you made. Thank you, AJ. So mentorship is number one reason I've been relatively successful from a career standpoint is luck. But the second one after that is definitely the mentors that I've had along the way. Whether it's been people like Kevin Ryan, who was the CEO of DoubleClick at the time, ultimately the person that acquired Meetup and the founder of MongoDB and the Gilt Group and Business Insider and Zola and all these other companies, or David Rosenblatt, who is now the CEO of First Dibs and on the board of IEC and on the board of Twitter. These are people who I've known for 25 years. Luckily, again, it goes back to luck. And whenever I had issues, whenever I had questions, whenever I had insecurities, whenever I just needed someone to be totally vulnerable around, who had no agenda except for helping me and setting me up for as much success as, as I could, um, I went to them and I went to them numerous times for different things and I seeked out their advice. Because I had that experience, I have a cadre now of 10 to 20 different people that I do the same thing for now. And it is probably one of the most meaningful parts of my life, of my business life, is the cadre of people that can call me about career issues or other challenges that they've had. And I think per your point, having a personal board of advisors, having a group of people that you can call through thick and thin is one of the best things that anyone could do to set themselves up, by the way, both professionally, but I would even say as well, personally as well, to have that group of people on a personal level too. With that, you know, right now you are on some people's personal board of advisors. So how did that come to be? How did they approach you? Like for those in our audience who aren't at the CEO level, who want to get to that level, how do they even get personal board of advisors? What's the strategy there? Okay, I'm going to give you an example. So there's someone, her her initials are EC. And actually, I got to know her when I first started at Meetup. Unfortunately, she was an initial round of layoffs, but I thought she did a great job. After the layoff, she said to me, you did exactly the right thing. My job was not important. I'm so impressed and we're in good hands that you did it. And then she called me up like a month later and she said, can you be my mentor? Just like that, straight up. And I said, I would love to help you, sure. You know, I'm not able to meet like every week or even every month, but on a quarterly basis, absolutely. I've written some career references for her to go to you know, business school and, and other schools. But to answer your question, one person just said straight out, I think I could learn from you. Can you be my mentor? And it wasn't some like game or anything like that. It was just open, direct, and honest. And that's the best. Just be direct. Another person, I teach at Columbia, so I've had, you know, 600 plus students through the years. And someone was decided to want to become a startup founder. She said, could you be on our kind of our board of advisors? I'm like, sure. So, you know, advising her about different things. And she just got 
a million and a half dollar check round of financing, you know, for her for her startup as well. So those things just are, are wonderful. So if, I guess my answer is ask directly. And also if there's a business context for um, having someone on an advisor level or board level, then that's another opportunity to be able to kind of pull people into. I love that just being direct because I think so many people are like, well, what's the magic secret code and what's the email sequence I need to send? And sometimes if you know, you know, and if you've been able to establish that trust, build that rapport in the relationship through the work you've done, then asking that question of, hey, I would love your help is not that difficult. A hundred percent. And then afterwards, a lot of times someone will just say, hey, can I take you out to lunch? I'm like, I like food. Sure. Let's go for lunch. At the end of the lunch, they'll usually say, not usually, sometimes someone will say, would you mind if we schedule another lunch for us in six months from now, just so we could keep this going? And I'm like, yes, do it. And you know what kills me? Maybe they didn't like the lunch, but half the time they did it. And half the time they just forget and they don't do it. And it's so easy. So the best thing to do is like when you're in the meeting, schedule the next follow-up meeting as opposed to waiting and forgetting. But yeah, the follow-up is so important. It's so important. Now you mentioned luck a number of times and I'm here in Vegas and I remember my first trip ever to Las Vegas. I was 21, didn't have much money and I was at the Palms Casino and they had a video poker game where you could put in a dollar and you could play a hundred hands, one penny a hand. And I remember sitting there at the screen and I just had all of these different opportunities to win. And I started winning. I started hitting a few hands and all of a sudden, you know, I won a hundred bucks and I'm like, I kind of like Vegas, but so many people come to Vegas. They put a hundred dollars down on black, bet it all one opportunity. And one of your decision frameworks is creating and chasing multiple opportunities. Why put it all on one? So can you unpack that for our audience? Cause I agree you create luck by building more opportunities in your life for the luck to pay off. Oh, first of all, that's such a great story. It is very similar to the way I've approached kind of everything, you know, from when I was first in business school and looking for a job, I didn't, you know, say like, oh, there's three jobs that are perfect for me. Let's craft the perfect resume and cover letter, you know, back in the day when they had cover letters, you know, to go to this like exact perfect job and like analysis paralysis. I sent out the exact same two line email to like 10,000 different potential potential people that I could get the job for and luck ends up happening and I get all these, you know, conversations. So to unpack it unpack it further, I think one of the areas in decision making that people don't prioritize enough is whether or not a decision creates options for yourself or decreases options for yourself. So let's say you're really into finance. You can either go into you go into a lot of things, but if you choose investment banking, everyone wants to hire an investment banker who's worked for investment banking for two years. Everyone wants that kind of experience. If you become a trader because you love finance, like a specialized commodities macroeconomics trader, the next job you get is a specialized commodities macroeconomics trader. Decreases options. When you have more options and you keep creating options for yourself, if you have a podcast like the two of you, if you let's write a book, if you do all these certain things or write an article for, you know, um, whatever, for anywhere, there are certain actions that could create significant opportunities. And when you have all those opportunities, guess what? Lucky stuff just ends up happening to you because you now have, like you said, a hundred different uh, slot machines all going at the same time. And even though it's only a penny, hey, that penny could still turn into a lot of money versus throwing it all on, you know, red 25 and, you know, going for that and then being disappointed that it doesn't work out. So I think the prioritizing optionality in decision-making directly results in making decisions that result in better luck. And luck, as I like to say, is hard work. You could work really hard and then lucky stuff will happen. Or you could sit on your butt playing video games all day and, oh, but whoa, me, no lucky stuff ever happens to me. Okay, well, you know, that was a decision you made. I think right there we have to separate and drill down into... The decisions that you had taken, and this is a difficult thing for all founders. We deal with it all the time, which is what are the opportunities that you chase? Because uh, we certainly have gotten ourselves in trouble with all this technology and all this new stuff and all these opportunities. You can't take on all of them and you need some focus. And you certainly discuss that in the book. So could you help our audience out with that? Yeah, great. So one of our six core principles is actually called focus on impact. 
And what that means is that the best way to have an outsized impact is with focus. The key is that you not, okay, so, so it could sound contradictory, like you said, which is wait, on one hand you're saying, do lots of different things. On the other hand, you're saying, stay focused. H how do you decide? How does it work? Okay, so here's the answer. If in the process of sending out lots of, I'll give the example of, of looking for a job, of, of sending out thousands of, of resumes and emails, if that takes you months and months to do, and the result of that is you not doing other things that could be more valuable, like meeting people and going for breakfast and, and having other things that could help advance your career, then you shouldn't do it. If, however, I, I think of return on time a lot, meaning how efficient is the action that you're doing that's opening up lots of options. If it's efficient and you open up lots of options for yourself, proceed with it. But if you're in a company situation, it's very hard for most companies to succeed in putting bets in a whole lot of different areas. It's a great way to potentially fail. And as a company, because companies are so much more complex than just individuals, as a company, it's much more important to be focused. Whereas at an individual level, what's oftentimes more important is to not be too focused actually too quickly and early in your career. Oh, there's only one person that type of person that I want to date. You know, no, be open to different options as well, but don't spend all your time just inefficiently going on one date with a hundred different people. That also doesn't make sense. So with that, obviously there's this emotional intelligence piece that I felt throughout the book. So there's this great example of you going, I think it might be job interview number 26 with Adam, recognizing that you're wearing a Brooks Brothers <clears throat> button up. He is not a button up guy seeing someone walking around the office with the WeWork meetup shirt and making a quick bargain to get the shirt on because you knew emotional intelligence here that that would resonate with Adam, right? I got to push him over the edge. It wasn't going to be a spreadsheet. It wasn't going to be a PowerPoint presentation from your consulting days that were going to win Adam over. It was going to be him buying into your belief in meetup and WeWork working together. How did you approach that? How did you read that on Adam? I think you have to, generally the philosophy is that people tend to like themselves, most people, or many people, I should say, that are especially in positions of power. And there is a bit of narcissism that exists oftentimes in people that are, quote unquote, more successful or powerful, more ego driven. That means that they like oftentimes hiring people a little bit more similar to themselves. And that's just a reality. So when you never want to act like someone different than yourself. But who I am represents lots of a spectrum of different person, different, different behaviors. And part of who I am is silly and fun-oriented and a bit mischievous at times. And that's part of my personality as well. So knowing that that's Adam as well, you just have to think, if Adam wants to hire the next person like him because he thinks that he's great at what he does, then how could you mirror that in the type of work they do? So when I saw that person, I'm like, let's get in the closet right now. I got his him to take his shirt off. I took my shirt off. We swapped. And then I walked in and Adam's like, well, if you convince someone to take the shirt off their back, then you could be a great CEO for Meetup one day. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. 
Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. And then you did one of the harder things, which was, well, now I need to draw a boundary. I got the job, but spending more time with Adam, hopping on his private jet, doing God knows what with Adam was not actually going to help your mission with Meetup. And you had this other relationship of a founder who's who's exiting his role, giving his baby to you. That's also a very important relationship to manage early on. So how did you have, one, the confidence to I don't want to say shun Adam, but draw such a, a strong boundary with Adam who had this call to personality that everyone wanted to be around, journalists included, and tell him, no, I can't get on the plane. I can't take that trip. Now's not the time for me. The answer is through making mistakes and failing in the past. Meaning in the past, I didn't set myself up for success. And I too often was a reactive to whatever my boss, my manager, director of the board had told me to do. And if you're overly reactive as a leader, you cause chaos in an organization because you're ping-ponging around from one perspective to another. So I had done that because of an aim to please, because I wanted people to like me more. I wanted to do a good job. I wanted to get promoted. And from that experience, I realized a lot of times when managers or leaders ask you to do something, they're wrong. And it's important to recognize that your job is not to follow orders, but it's to set yourself up for success. And you as a manager's job is to set other people up for success. So I knew from Scott and from others that Adam, and from just TV, that Adam is a very opinionated person and has strong opinions about everything. At one point he said to me, I'm going to tell you what meetup strategy is. And then, you know, we're going to go from there. Well, the moment that we sit down for five hours on a plane, a private jet, you know, from New York to San Francisco, and he tells me this is what it's got to be, the entire rest of my time there, I'm going to be on the defensive and having to explain why I didn't follow what he told me to do. So I need to not be in the position where he's even sharing what the strategy is. I need to be sharing the strategy first, but I can't share a strategy in the beginning because I don't know anything yet. So one of the things I got him to do, and this is one of the most... I don't even think I put this in the book. One of the most like biggest successes, pathetically, that, that I would say is one time about two months in, Adam called me up and he said, David, I was told by Artie Minson, who's the, who was the president of WeWork at the time, that I'm not allowed to talk to you for three months. And I respect that. But I just have a very little question to ask you. So essentially, Adam actually kept his promise and, and, and stayed away for a period of time. And then after that period of time ended, 
that's where the story of him wanting to take a plane and me refusing to take the plane with him, you know, happened. So, you know, setting boundaries is really important. It's really, really important. Personal boundaries, professional boundaries. So then you have the flip side, right? So Scott built the business. He's the founder of this business. I mean, you want to talk about the community guy, it's Scott. And this is why we call it the art of charm. Because you have to read the other person at the other side of the table. Cutting off Scott, drawing strong boundaries with Scott was going to be a huge mistake in you taking over the reins and was going to burn a lot of people that trusted Scott in the process. So on the one hand, you have Adam, who you have to to basically cast aside and say, I got to do my job and draw that clear boundary. And then you got to build trust with Scott in an entirely different way because his trust carries weight throughout the meetup company. All of those leaders that worked under him that bought into his vision, they had to come around to your vision and your vision was going to be different than his. So how did you approach building trust in that realm, which was totally different than how you handled Adam? Yeah, great call out. So with Adam, I wanted kind of zero communication for the first three months. For Scott, however, I wanted to make sure that I had enough space to be able to develop my own perspective, maybe even fail a couple of times and make some mistakes, but at the same time, leverage him as a trusted advisor throughout. So we planned and we did get together every two weeks, every three weeks, every four weeks in the beginning. He became the chairman of the company so that his heart and soul and incredible mission orientation would always be a part of things. So what I did for Adam was more separation. What I did for Scott was more, let's make sure that there's a non-operational ownership role, because if he owns operations, it would be difficult for to make to make some changes because of his history in the company. And, not, and it's not about Scott's, any CEO, it's tough to move to an operational role after you've been the founder for 16 years. But at the same time, retain the greatness that Scott has to offer. And it worked and it worked really well. And he would he would take people on, on visits of different meetup events and kind of build mission orientation and motivation kind of within the organization. And then when we had ideas, I would ask us for advice and he'd be like, yeah, we probably shouldn't have done that. And, and he was very, very incredibly honest and humble. Very, very humble person, you know, in, in terms of our kind of dealings together. I'll tell you one last thing, AJ and Johnny, which is that our 20th anniversary is coming up in three months. And I call Scott and I said, Scott, this is your baby. This is your heart and your soul. I need you to be, I want you to be, I hope you'll be a speaker, you know, at our 20th anniversary celebration. And he said, absolutely, I'd be honored to. So I think his DNA is in the DNA of the company. And to throw the baby out with the bathwater is not an optimal type situation for Meetup to be able to thrive. It's about having the right role and creating boundaries around that role as well. You mentioned in the book that the founder oftentimes is making decisions based on intuition. And that intuition is great when starting a business because there are no numbers. There are no tests. There's no hard data to work from. So you kind of have to trust your gut. You make some calls right. You make some calls wrong, but you double down on the right ones. And then you build what you think is a great intuition for business. And that had steered the company off course from making money, building revenue and growing in a way that would allow it to sustain itself. And there are a lot of initiatives that were his baby that were pet projects and people that he really admired their loyalty over maybe their impact. And you had to come in and, and make those hard decisions. And I think for those in our audience who aren't in a, a leadership role, there's still this, you recognize something, but it's a tough conversation. It's, you see something going wrong in, inside the company or even in your relationship and you know in your gut, you got to speak up, but you might not have the power or the trust just yet. So how do you approach those difficult conversations when there were some blind sp spots that Scott had in running the company? Yeah, so what I did in that specific instance, then I'll tell you the, what I did, and then, and then I'll share like the larger learnings of what other people can do as well. In that situation, because I was coming in, I didn't want to seem like this arrogant person that know-it-all of like, kill this, do that, change this, change that. Instead... I came in the first day and I said, we're going to create five or six different work streams. We're going to tackle the most tough questions out there. And one of the questions, for example, was what should we stop doing? Because we were doing too many things, like you said. Had people volunteer for the group. We had 15 people volunteer for the group. They met every single day for two weeks. 
every day. I said, that's more important than your job because this is the future of the company. And I instituted, my focus was the process, not necessarily what the outcome would be. But the key was, then what happened is that group recommended five different areas of things that we should kill after only two weeks. Things they're working on for six months, for a year, for two years in some cases. And then rather than the arrogant CEO who doesn't know anything yet, and they'd be right, coming in and saying, kill this, change that. Instead, I said, I am going to take your exact advice of the five things that we're going to kill. We're going to kill all five, and we're going to move forward, and I'm going to do exactly what you told me to do. So what we did there is we empowered people who may not have had the voice and the permission to be able to actually say something, because people don't oftentimes appreciate the power of the sunk cost fallacy that, oh my gosh, I put so much time into this. How could I stop doing it? I put so much time into this relationship, been in this relationship for three years. I've been living in this location for 10 years. How could I extricate myself? If I do that, that means I'm a failure. If I do that, that means that, that like all the time that I spent into this was a huge mistake. No, everything's a learning opportunity. You gain from that experience. So we have this huge bias around it that disenables us to be able to call out and make those changes and to have a person from the outside come in, enable them to be able to call it like it is. The truth ended up becoming so obvious that it became very, very easy decisions for us to do. So when it comes to those who maybe aren't in that leadership role, those learnings, you know, how do you bring that to difficult conversations in your personal life? Yeah. So for difficult conversations, number one is I would say, let's say you're unhappy in a relationship, for example, there is a very high likelihood that the person you have a relationship with is also unhappy. And there could be something that's frustrating you and frustrating them at the same time, but you don't just say it. You don't just talk about it. You're afraid of actually saying it. It goes back to what we talked about earlier, which is with the mentor piece. If you're honest and you say, hey, I'm wondering if you're unhappy right now. I'm wondering if you're also challenged right now, because I am. If you're as vulnerable as possible around the things and the areas that are challenging in your life, the result of that is the person you're speaking to oftentimes will be more vulnerable as well. And then when you get two people that are able to be vulnerable with each other, good decisions get made and good alignment happens. It's when there's this, the opposite of that, which passive aggressiveness or people being too prideful to be vulnerable, that it creates significant tension. So what I would say there is find ways of being an overflowing cup in your vulnerability, and that will lead to incredible communications with others and letting them be vulnerable and really learning about how to end up in a better place. Not always easy when ego gets in the way. That's the challenge. And you you bring up a few times. So early on in, in your tenure, you have to make these layoffs and you get asked a, a very tough question for any leader. Is this, is there more coming? Like, is this it? Please tell me this is it. And your ego gets the best of you and, and you speak too soon before you have the data and a real lay of the land and say, this is it. And you have to eat crow later on in your tenure and actually let more people go. Also, while this is all going on, there's a mass exodus. You're seeing your net promoter score plummet. You're seeing people write really nasty things about you on Glassdoor. You mentioned earlier that, listen, a lot of leaders are a touch narcissistic. Ego is an important part of being a leader. And you had some pretty big blows to your ego starting early on in this tenure with Meetup. So how did you face those challenges and how did you start to move your ego out of the driver's seat to be someone who's more employee first focused? I would say highly imperfectly. <laughs> you know, sometimes when people are on podcasts, they sound like, you know, they got all their, you know, S together and, you know, everything sounds like all, all great. I would come home sometimes and I get a glass door, you know, review about something and I look at it and be like, Oh my God, people hate me. <laughs> and it was hard. It was like really hard. And there were times where, you know, at Investopedia, I felt like, oh my God, I could do no wrong. I'm the best CEO ever. We were we like best company to work for three straight years, all these different things, cranes and fortune. And I get to meet up and I'm like, I think I'm the worst CEO. I really thought that I had like gotten lucky at one point. And now I just lost a lot of confidence, to be honest with you. And, you know, it took 
like we said, mentors to be able to go to, to ask for help. And it also took business business results actually starting to change and, and starting to see growth on the top line, more profit and more sustainable in the business in the bottom line. And then increasingly start seeing kind of our employee engagement numbers, which were really bad, get a little less bad and then a little bit less bad than that. And then even actually good and then, and then, and then even better than good. But I found the process extraordinarily difficult. It was a real, it was really hard for me. I remember, you know, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't share this, but what the heck? That's always the best thing to tell a podcaster. Yeah. Like you want to hear it. But I, John and I just leaned in. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't in the book either, but I remember Scott at one point saying to me something like, there were days when he just didn't want to come to the office and that he just wanted to hide in his office when he did get there. Cause, cause they're, they're just challenging. It's challenging to become a CEO, to be a CEO under the microscope of kind of larger decisions that end up getting made in an organization where a lot of people don't understand the reasons for it and don't have enough background or maybe can't be shared certain certain reasons for things as transparent as you want to be. And I definitely felt the same thing as well. So paradoxically, when COVID happened and we were moved to work from our homes, it oddly for me became an easier job to run the company, then we were all kind of together in person trying to sell the company. And we would just see people whispering in every corner, you know, of the building and kind of rumors going around around different things. So oddly, it ended up galvanizing the company towards our mission, towards connections, towards helping people during this difficult time. And we've had 5 million plus meetup events, you know, online to help people. So I'm not sure where I was going, but hopefully that answered. <laughs> answered your question. One of the struggles early in the book that you had to to fix in order to move it forward was that company culture. And it also had the added issue of it being a, a, a there was a parent company that had whose culture permeated through the culture that you were trying to change. And you, and you also mentioned earlier in this interview that you find co- a company culture one of the most important things uh, that's going to define that company's success. So could you speak to... Uh, well, there's one, one other aspect that I just want to highlight is the, the naysayers, because in taking over company culture, you did make some cuts, but you admitted that they weren't as massive you wanted to just nibble around the edges at the start. And obviously these are people losing their job. It's never easy to make that decision. But with that, then there were a lot of naysayers who were invested in MeanUp who said, we can't do that, or we've done that before, or what are you talking about? We know that's not going to work. How do you deal with changing the culture with a parent company internally, and then the naysayers who were still on board, who were not going to buy into your new vision? Okay, so let me do the naysayers and the parent company. So naysayers. If the naysayer is a senior leadership person in the company, I really do believe in the Jim Collins principle of first who, then what. Make sure you have the right people on the management team before you're able to really make changes. Because if you try to make change after change with the wrong people, it's not going to end up working out anyway. So don't try to... Sometimes slow is fast and sometimes fast is slow. So do slow sometimes in strategy and fast on having the right people. So people who are naysayers, and I would sit in a meeting and I would see someone rolling their eyes around something, which is like the worst... We, I had 12 direct reports or 12 people in our management team that I inherited six months later, only one person was still there. So that will tell you about kind of some major changes that we, we made kind of in the management team. And not all of it because of naysayers, some, quite, quite a few of them came to meet up for certain reasons. And, and, I, and we had different reasons once I was there from a business standpoint. So it certainly wasn't just one-sided. It was kind of certainly dual-sided, but I would say naysayers in leadership have no place. That's it. If you want to be constructive, you want to be solution oriented, if you want to figure out how we can succeed, hey, that's great. But if you're just going to be about problems and no's and we tried that, been there, done that already, that's that's just that's a problem. That doesn't work. So I have a hard line on that. And sometimes you have to have a hard line and kind of decide to move on. When there's naysayers in the rest of the organization, then you have to understand kind of how toxic that naysaying can be. And we had employees who were exceptionally skilled 
but became kind of toxic naysayers in the organization. And you have to identify them. You have to have a conversation with them about kind of their attitude and how they're discussing things with other people. More often than not, after that conversation, they did start looking for jobs and they decided to leave. And you didn't actually have to take action. And there are a few cases where we did, but more often than not, this, the, the situation actually ended up resolving itself. So that that's my perspective on kind of the naysayers approach. Be very aggressive when it comes to leadership and highly influential people and be strongly communicative for people who are not and see what the reaction is in, in a leadership position. In terms of Johnny's question around kind of culture and the WeWork relationship, I really like grounding things in anchors. And to me, the anchors of culture are your mission, your vision, and your values. When you have those specific anchors, it allows you to point out each of those things and ensure that that's imbued in the organization. And when I say imbued, I mean in our recruiting process, we use that for hiring. In performance management and 360 feedback, we evaluate people based on those values. If we're gonna, when we promote people, we promote people based on those values. We have awards, like a step-up award for people who step up, who demonstrate that value. And we incent people based on those values. At one point, believe it or not, WeWork had said to me, you don't need meetup values anymore. We're going to give you WeWork's values and WeWork's values are going to be meetup's values. And that's how it's going to work. And I was like, no, no, no. You can't just like impose values as a parent company. You know, that doesn't work. So that's, again, an example where sometimes your highest fighting is internal and not external. It's kind of going back and forth with Adam and the, and the HR department at WeWork around things that they just try to push down that may have made sense for a 10,000-person organization, but hell no didn't make sense for a 250-person company. Did you know that culture was incompatible with Meetup before you had gotten in when you were doing your research and that was something you were going to contend with? Or was it something that once you got in, you realized, oh, this has got to change. This is, this is keeping this company from its success. Fortunately, no surprises there. Everyone was very open. The WeWork team thought so lowly of the Meetup team. And the Meetup team just disparaged the WeWork team to me directly on both sides, that the dysfunctionality was incredibly apparent day one. And um, one of our questions that we had asked was, what should our relationship with WeWork actually be? Was one of the strategic questions also that we did in a work stream because it wasn't the right relationship before, but how do we channel that into something that's actually positive? So it was, it was incredibly evident and called out to all parties and everyone certainly agreed with it. Now, as a leader, Many of your mistakes aren't necessarily going to be public. They're internal, they're strategy decisions, they're tests, and they fail. You had a, a pretty big public mistake in the middle of <laughs> WeWork trying to sell the company. A massive change from what you had envisioned was a small test in Delaware. You learned the power of social media. So can you share that? anecdote with our audience and what you took away from that public mistake. Oh my God, the two of you really read this book. Oh wow, I love it. Okay, you don't, you don't, uh, you don't pull back. So I love that. So one of our philosophies and assumptions was why do organizers who do all the work also have to pay and members who attend meetup events where these amazing experiences, there's no cost for, mo for 90 eight, 99% of meetup events for members. How do we enable organizers to have to pay less? Maybe don't pay at all. Maybe they can make money as an organizer. And the way in which we could do that, because in order to have the same revenue, not necessarily more revenue, just the same revenue, is to have members potentially pay like $2 to RSVP in an event. So we did a lot of work. We did a lot of testing. We talked to all these people. But you know what? Talking to people don't mean jack when you actually launch something. And it was crazy. So it was actually a Jewish holiday. And I don't use my phone or internet or any electricity during a Jewish holiday. And <laughs> um, it was the middle of the sale process. It was October of 2019. We had, we had just sent out our SIMs. And we did a small test in Delaware of like 50 organizers where we said, we're going to test out charging for $2 for an RFVP and see what happens. Well, that organizer decided to post that test on Twitter, which obviously is so obvious now, like, of course they would. And also in our Facebook organizer group and say, Meetup has completely changed his policy right now. And now they're charging $2 for RSVP. 
we had thousands, tens of thousands of organizers calling our phones, emailing us, wanting to cancel. It was a total uproar. And then we had articles in The Verge and Business Insider and all these different places kind of come out. And I had the philosophy generally that I really believe in the MVP and the lean startup approach. And you test your way into learning and that's and you learn fast. Well, we learn fast. And, and the, <laughs> the learning was that you got to be a lot more inquisitive and listening and opting, having people opt in to a test and all tests, everything is public. Just assume that everything that you do could be on the cover of the Wall Street Journal. And if you don't want your, your picture, you know, your cartoon face, I don't know if they do it anymore. I haven't gotten read the Wall Street Journal in a while. You're on the cover of the Wall Street Journal, then, you know, don't do it. Um, but it was, it was tough. And then every time we had a meeting, we had, every time we had a meeting with a, with a buyer, the first question they said is, what happened with that test? I mean, I saw these articles that's going on. I mean, what happened there? And, and it became almost about that. And uh, it was an important learning that everything that you think could be private could very instantly be public. Um, but we did learn very quickly and uh, shut that down. And I remember my, I turned my phone on and I see like the first thing I see is a text by our, our, our VP of product. And it said, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, sorry about what? <laughs> and then I, I just see lots more things coming through. And I'm like, oh. Well, when many of us think of decisions, we think of taking our time, thinking through it, using our framework, having time to talk to our mentors. And there are countless examples in the book of just things happening incredibly fast. So, uh, hey, we're about to go for sale and this article is going to hit in 15 minutes. I got to get the team together and then a massive pivot. And we touched on this a little bit earlier around COVID. You know, we're an in-person business at the Art of Charm. Meetup, in-person, community. Can't do that in the middle of a pandemic. So how did you handle that pivot? And what did you learn about pivoting a company in general? Because that's just a huge change in your business. Yeah, so I love the term pivot. And the reason I love it so much versus movement or change is that the whole idea of a pivot is that your heel is implanted and not moving and your foot is kind of moving, but you keep a part of you planted and not moving. So for us, our heel, what we did not move was our mission. We said that our mission is immovable. And what is our mission? To empower personal growth through real human connections. Our mission was not IRL. Our mission was not in-person only. Our mission was driving connections, full stop. So we got everyone together. We said, okay, let's live by our anchor. What is our anchor? Our anchor is driving connections. It's not IRL. Now, I'll tell you the number one reason why we rejected meetup groups. We rejected tens of thousands of meetup groups, by the way, before the pandemic is because they said, we want to do Zoom digital only type meetup groups. It was the number one reason why we rejected groups. And then it become, became the only way that we could actually do groups. And there were the naysayers, by the way, like we talked about. They said, but at one point, Scott took a sledgehammer and smashed to pieces a VR device in front of all employees because he told us all how terrible, you know, digital stuff is. The, the company that uses technology get people off of technology. Come on, that's totally against what our, who we stand for. And he said, no, we stand for helping to support people, to decrease the loneliness epidemic, to connect people. And the only way to do that is with digital right now. And we have to full on embrace it. And oh my God, the number one request by our organizers today is please, please, once COVID has passed, will we still be able to do online events? And hell yeah, because if you have like a passion around stamp collecting Algerian stamps, and it's like super niche, you know, as an example, well, there may not be tons of people in Kansas City that do that, but if you have a, a global community that you could build relationships with and do that, if you could have an ecstatic dance group where people are dancing across 20 different countries, if you could make it easy for people to just turn on Zoom and connect to something that's happening in Mongolia when you're in New York or in, Chi or, or in China when you're in you know, Paris. What an amazing experience. So the answer is the future is both. And for us, uh, you know, it was a way you know, for, for us to you know, embrace the new and not necessarily let the naysayers kind of you know, rue the day. Yeah. Well, all these crises, all these decisions, what, what has been your proudest moment in your tenure with Meetup? This podcast right now. <laughs> well said. <laughs> uh, and we're done. Cut. Stop the tape. <laughs> um, 
I try not to think about like pride and like what I'm proud of. Here's what I'm proud of. I'm proud that Meetup is in a position to last forever because the world needs Meetup. And we were in a position financially that was completely unsustainable and, and terrifying, frankly. And people didn't realize how unsustainable it was. And I'm proud of the fact that if we could survive the pandemic of two years of not meeting up in person, basically, and emerge out of the pandemic fully cash flow positive and fully secure in everything we're doing and watching all of our numbers kind of going up and up and up as people are kind of moving out and getting out of the pandemic. I think I just read in the US, COVID cases are down 96% from January right now. And we're seeing all of our numbers going up and up. That to me is the best legacy I could live because it means that something that's incredibly core, I think, to the entire world will always be able to be here and be able to be able to thrive and support people. Well, thank you for continuing to put together meetups for everyone in person and online. And I know, as we've said multiple times on this show, we're huge fans. I was just literally earlier this week talking to one of our show fans in Atlanta who's looking to build a social circle after a big life change. And I said, what are you into? What are you passionate about? And she's like, well, I like hiking and I like antiquing. And I said, meetup.com, couple clicks, found a hiking group in Atlanta and Adrian's having some fun meeting some new people. So it's been tremendous that you survived the pandemic through this pivot. And I'm really excited to see what in your mind is next for meetup. I think the next is I am hopeful that the roaring twenties will come back again in a really positive way. You know, if you think about a hundred years ago when there was the dual challenge of World War I and the Spanish flu and those two things that kept people inside, kept people isolated, and we didn't experience it, but 10, 20 million people, you know, died as part of that. And thank God that numbers have not hit that, those, that, those numbers here yet. Those six million is, you know, beyond a travesty globally. I think that the Roaring Twenties are going to be back later this year. I think we're going to be living with COVID as an endemic, not a pandemic, you know, for decades and maybe centuries to come. I think people's need for community is even stronger. And I think Meetup can be driving success around community for potentially 5 billion people. You know, not all 7 billion have, let's say, enough bandwidth and internet access, but for 5 billion people across the world. And that's what's next for Meetup to be the platform that helps every single person in the world never feel lonely again. And, and it's not changing. That's what, our, that's what our goal was in the past. It's the same goal now. It's the same thing. And we're just going to hopefully do it in a more meaningful scale for everyone. Well, thank you for writing the book, Decide and Conquer. This is your second time coming on the show. We asked you what your X factor is. I'd love to know what your decision-making X factor is in this final question. Okay, as you probably can tell, because I'm a freaking open book, speaking of books, it's probably transparency. I just believe that the best things happen when you're as honest as possible with the most important thing that you don't offend people when you're being transparent at the same time. It's one thing for someone to say, well, it's just being transparent. No, 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 it's, it's, it, that's not acceptable. You need to be thoughtful and kind, and you also need to be as transparent as possible. So I would say transparency is probably my, uh, you know, the why factor, shall we say. Thank you, David. Right on. Thank you. Where could the audience find the book and more information? Okay. You could go to decideandconquerbook.com or you could go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, local bookstore, wherever. And the audio version, by the way, is awesome. It's not for me because I'm a little too nasally, but the, the guy who raised it is just super full of passion and enthusiasm. And I definitely recommend the audiobook, the Kindle copy, you know, or the hardcover book. March 8th, it's uh, available and, you know, go for it. Awesome. Today's shout out goes to the guys who came through our X Factor live event last weekend. We had such an amazing time and one of our clients, Tom, he's a dentist, was quite skeptical that changing his body language was going to improve his interactions. But after seeing himself on video and correcting himself, he instantly felt more confident. So confident, in fact, that he was leading the rest of the class as they went out to enjoy themselves in beautiful Las Vegas. What most people don't realize is 
is they are just a few tweaks away from having a completely different experience interacting with people. Correcting your body language that sends the wrong messages can open up a brand new world to you. Johnny, nothing gives me more excitement than in our X Factor Live sessions with video work, seeing the transformation in our clients. And if you've listened this far, my guess is that it's because you want more out of life. Well, if that's the case, join us, the Art of Charm team, and hundreds of other people just like you who are experiencing breakthrough conversations, supercharging their confidence, and growing an incredible network inside of our world-famous X Factor Accelerator program. The X Factor Accelerators, where high-achieving, like-minded people strategize to unlock their X Factor to make sure that they get the most out of life's opportunities and unlock those doors, keeping them from success. We start every month with an intense goal-setting strategy session, so you have a personalized plan of attack, as well as weekly implementation sessions with opportunities to practice your conversation skills, rapport building, supercharge your charisma through powerful communication, and finally, Unlock the charm to attract the right people into your life. Imagine what you can accomplish with coaching with the art of charm. What are you waiting for? Join us today at unlockyourxfactor.com. That's unlockyourxfactor.com. All right, before we head out, a huge thank you to our producers, Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery. We hope you have an epic week. 